Hello and welcome to the Woking College History Podcast. Hello and welcome to this podcast session with me, Stephen Drury. And me, Joe Bostock. Our subject today will examine the success of modernisation in Stalinist Russia. There will be some questions to test your listening skills, so please relax and engage your mind. By the end of the 1920s, the Soviet Union's economy had not significantly improved to a level that existed before the new economy policy it was introduced in 1921. The NEP had partly achieved its aims of allowing the economy to recover by a limited capitalist system, but growth was not rapid enough, nor was it producing enough to satisfy Stalin's vision of rapid industrialization. Modernization was vital as it needed to occur for communists to enter according to the Marxist stage theory. In this podcast, you will learn, learn, of two, you, you'll learn two major features of modernization in Stalinist Russia collectivization and industrialization. Although these will be dealt with separately, it is important to remember that these events occurred synonymously and directly affected one another. Modernization was needed in the late 1920s and the means to achieve it lay in agriculture. In what was termed as the Great Turn, Stalin introduced a policy of collectivization so as to achieve greater outcomes in agriculture to modernize the Soviet Union. Collectivization in the Soviet Union is seen as the policy adopted in the agricultural industry between 1928 and 1933 as a necessary part of the five-year plans, which would increase the agricultural produce to a level to free workers to participate in industrial sectors. Small plots were combined into large collective farms and equipment was equally shared. The aims were to eventually modernise the me methods of agricultural industry, increase the production of weapons and to raise the standards of living for the USSR people. This podcast will examine the extent of the success of collectivization in concordance with these aims, but will also consider the economy, Stalin and the various social and political groups which were directly affected by the drastic changes made. Although collectivization managed to achieve a couple of Stalin's over-ambitious aims, the disastrous knock-on effect it had on the various groups of people, as well as the economy, far outweighs it. You will find that collectivization was a policy of death and destruction to the pattern of the economy and to the lives of the Soviet people. The degree of success that the process of collectivization achieved during its years is dependent on the viewpoint, but to a damaged economy, people and country, Stalin's policy was not favourable and did not deliver what it promised. Stalin's power struggle, now virtually over, the dictator changed his policies from the capitalist NEP to one of rapid industrialization. This turn required a collective form of agriculture so as to greatly increase the grain production from its current crisis state. It required the collective working of the peasants, the liquidation of rich peasants, the kulaks and the use of force in the new farms to ensure that grain was not held back from the government. In a process known as 
decoulaxation, Stalin effectively eradicated the wealthy and more experienced farmer peasants, the kulaks. The kulaks had gathered success in the form of wealth and status among the countryside farming community due to the NEP and the capitalistic take on private ownership and profits. However, this, this success was stripped from them in relatively short time and the years of collectivization turned to a time of suffering and death. During the years of forced collectivization, which is 1930 onwards, Stalin called for the use of force against the class enemy. The Kulaks, in February 1930, a decree was issued stating that force was to be used by party organisations against the Kulaks. This was warfare for the Bolshevik party. Intense propaganda was mounting against the Kulaks, or indeed anyone who resisted the policy of collectivisation. Children and families were encouraged to denounce the r their rich neighbours as Kulaks, and so sentenced them to a possible death. By the beginning of 1933, more than 50,000 people had been sentenced. Stalin also used the NKVD and officials to carry out searches to identify the Kulaks. By 1934, Stalin had effectively rid himself of the Kulaks and their influences, a success for him and his policy of a destruction, but for the Kulaks, a pitiful end. This had a ne negative effect on the grain production, as we will find out. Production of grain was an important factor in the economy of the country and was on its recovery by the late 1920s. The Kulaks were the biggest contributors to this, but due to their demise, grain production was under threat. The USSR's economy was previously dependent on this measly supply of grain, but Stalin planned to change this in his rejection of the NEP. He planned to increase grain supplies drastically under state control to avoid any future crisis the economy might suffer due to bad harvests or the peasants' unwillingness to work. Stalin saw the collectivization of agriculture and the use of modern techniques as a step in the right direction, but the lack of planning that went into the process and the implications of the policy turned grain production on its head. From 1928 to 1934, the grain harvest dropped by 5.7 million tonnes. This was partly due to a famine of 1932 to 1934 in the Ukraine and Volga regions. Stalin lost f some face with the lack of organisation in grain production, especially with the killing of the Kulaks. The poor quality of machinery produced by the industrialisation did little to boost production, and the lack of training the peasants were given in using them was shameful. However, Stalin managed to alter the perception of the, of the situation in the state procurement of grain. Stalin himself went to several provinces to enforce the seizure of grain. A sentence known as the Seven Apes was introduced as, as 10 years for withholding grain from the state. All profits would go directly to the government, effectively leaving the peasants with nothing of their own. As a result, the state procurement of grain between 1928 and 1934 increased by just under 12 million tonnes. Procurement occurred during th even throughout the famine. This was a success for Stalin as it gave him control of the countryside and fulfilled his aim of increasing grain production. However, it was not grain production that increased per se, but the amount the state had in its possession. In this way, Stalin denied the existence of starvation in his country. He successfully used this surplus procured grain for trade and the gain of foreign currency to, to purchase modern machinery and weapons. Stalin's plan was working to some degree and the country was definitely modernising by 1934. Modernisation and increased production of armaments strengthened the Red Army enough to allow the USSR to defend itself from any future invasions. But the standard of living was not better, and in that way Stalin had failed. 
Stalin designed a fairly unorganized plan of collectivization, but due to his ability to react to situations, he managed to keep exports up, and the state procurement of grain allowed the country to continue with rapid industrialization. He succeeded in most of his plans, and by the end of the second five-year plan, the USSR was definitely industrializing to a world level. But he did not take into account the effect his actions would have on the people. The Kulaks. The term Kulak applies to the Russian rich peasants who exploited the NEP in its early stages. However, you will find that their, their lives turned to a dismal communist death. The Kulaks acquired their well-founded wealth in the communities of Russia due to their farming skills and potential and, and potential, and became key members of the Russian farming world producing the most and having access to more modern machinery and equipment. Their wealth was found in hard labour and skillful enterprises founded in the capitalist approaches on profit, acquisition and renting of land. The Kulaks built themselves up during the 1920s and by the late 1920s had considerable inf influence, affluence, even hiring labour to work on their extensive plots. Indeed, these pivots of agricultural community gave much to their, the economy by the way of grain, and so are crucial in building it up. But by 1929, it was clear that the Kulak's freedoms and wealth would no longer be theirs. With the introduction of collectivization, Stalin brought about an anti-Kulak society in order to reflect the eradication of capitalist elements and so move from capitalism into socialism. On 27th December 1929, Stalin called for the liquidation of Kulaks as a class. This basically meant that the Kulaks were to be eliminated. Initially, a relatively subtle approach was used. The lower peasants were targeted as sources of information on their whereabouts, but due to the strong ties the Kulaks had built in their communities and the lack of some officials' cooperation, Stalin decided on an all-aggression policy. In February 1930, 25,000 urban activists from the party were sent to run the new collective farms, and although they did not have the necessary knowledge on how to run a farm, they certainly knew how to wage class warfare. With the help of the police, the secret police and the military, these activists ruthlessly sentenced any person who went against collectivization, even if they weren't strictly Kulaks. The activists established a form of classification in sentencing the Kulaks. The first category comprised of counter-revolutionaries, and they were sentenced with execution, exile, or the confiscation of property. The second category was termed active opponents of collectivization, and whose fate was deportation to Siberia with limited possessions. A further 396,000 to 852,000 farmers were sent out of the collective farm, or kolkhoz, to settle on poor and product unproductive land. This class genocide was a catastrophic disaster for the Kulaks and peasants. An estimated 10 million were said to be either killed or deported. Taking into consideration that the Kulaks were the wealthy and better farmers, one can only imagine the effect this policy had on the economy and the production of grain. In addition, the Kulaks had to share their land and machinery, which was later claimed by the state and managed. Out of this, one cannot see any possible benefit in, in any form of money, influence or acclaim for the Kulaks. For them, collectivization was a process of death and destruction of all they had built up and contributed. The less affluent farmers, the peasants, were left to complete an impossible and grueling task under the strict and brutal state control. At this point, think about the process of de 
Kulakization. How much of the success was collectivization for the Kulaks? The peasants did not have great influence, what with the Kulaks being at the fore of production, but their sheer numbers meant that during the NEP, the economy was dependent on their work and skill. They used, according to Stalin, backward techniques, but managed to survive off profit and surplus grain. However, with the introduction of collectivization, their lifestyles changed tremendously, and did so to their detriment. With industrialization, factories mass-produced a great number of modern machinery, such as tractors and combine harvesters. These new and revolutionary pieces of equipment, although highly praised and acclaimed, were poorly made. The focus was on quantity and not quality. You will learn more about this in the section on industrialization. Machine and tractor stations, known as MTS, were set up in the collective farms and run by the state to exercise control over the peasants and to manage the collective process. Better machinery was used in contrast to the backward methods the peasants had previously used, and so was a success to them in some way. However, the peasants were not adequately prepared, as they should have been, for using these metal monsters. They often broke them due to this very fact, which was detrimental as the state-controlled stations would see fit that they be sent to gulags, work camps, for preventing progress in the agricultural industry. One should question, how much did the peasants benefit from the process of industrialization? The peasants benefited from much more, more modern agricultural machinery, but with a lack of adequate knowledge on them, their benefit turned to a quick, quickly to a nightmare. Furthermore, they had to give the entire surplus to the state, leaving them with nothing. In the countryside, the peasants were starting to feel the pinch of industrialisation. If they were not sent to gulags, they were left to an even worse fate. Due to the dropping in grain production, the state increased its procurement levels to accomplish its aims. The peasants, who were so crucial in production of grain, were left with virtually nothing. All the surpluses had to go to the state, and this was done by force. The army was used to enforce the policy and to punish any unwilling volunteers. The meagre profit that pre peasants used to survive off was taken away from them and used for the so-called benefit of the country. They worked for limited wages on the collective farms from 1930 onwards and received little or few incentives for their work. They were bound to collectives due to harsh systems of internal passports that prevented any excessive moving about, especially away from the farms where they were needed. In 1930, peasant resistance was high and rife in the countryside. Instead of allowing the government to steal their grain, the peasants burnt it. Animals, which would have gone to the state for slaughter, were all slaughtered at once and either sold or eaten. Between 1930 and 1934, the number of cattle had dropped by 9.9 million heads in sheep. The gap was even more evident, dropping from 108.8 million to 51.9 million heads. The peasants showed no mercy to their stock, but wanted to make sure the impact was felt. Houses and the machinery that they now despised were burnt and destroyed, with no concern about possible deportation. Indeed, the army was sent to quell the masses, and many were arrested and sent away. Women resistance was in fact the most effective, as it was planned and set on targets, instead of rushing into a frenzy of destruction. Effectively, the peasants were destroying their futures, but to their purpose, it was a success. Had they known a famine that was to kill them off in their millions was about to strike, would have gone so far. In 1932, a great famine struck the Ukraine and Volga regions. The causes are seen as man-made, but whatever the case may be, it resulted in the destruction of the material breadbasket of the USSR and affected the success of collectivization as a policy. 
The famine struck due, due to a combination of factors and resulted in the death of 10 to 30 million Ukrainian peasants. Stalin's policy of deculacization was perhaps one of the chief causes for the famine. From 1928 through the famine, with only a brief respite in March 1930, the Kulaks were hunted down and sent either to Siberia or put to work on labor settlements. The total number of Kulaks killed or sent away to Kulaks was about 10 million. 10 million more experienced wealthy farmers were excluded from the collective program. This void was never filled, and the grain, grain production in which they were such a key factor of started to decline. The 25,000 activists that were sent to carry out the policy and run the collective farms were not organized and had, not, had, had no sufficient knowledge of farming. The machinery that had been so highly sought after and praised did not have sufficient numbers and influence to enforce any collectivisation policy. Peasants' resistance also played a role in the lack of food and resources available for themselves. The resistance led to less production and the slaughtering of millions of cattle, sheep and pigs in their opposition. Grain, already under su sufficient pressure, was further affected by the severe drought in 1931. Crops failed and the peasants were struggling to survive. However, to add to this disaster, the government was persisting in collecting grain in quotas so as to keep up exports at their highest level. Even throughout the famine, the state pro procured grain and showed no mercy to the peasants. As a result, famine struck the country and Ukraine was particularly hard hit. Previously, the Ukrainian officials were against the collective policy and did not enforce, enforce it, and perhaps this was an indicator why Ukraine was the USSR's breadbasket. However, Stalin sent new officials to this area that enforced the detrimental policy and seized all grain stock owned by the peasants. The result was death on a catastrophic scale. It was genocide. From late 1932 to 1934, there was continual famine. To add to this, some stocks of seized grain were left rotting, waiting for transportation. This grain could have been used to feed the dying masses, those that the government denied. This incident led to the end of the breadbasket of the USSR and is an example of the destructive nature of the collectivization policy. At this point, question the government's role in the famine. Did the famine occur as a direct result of policies such as decolacization, or was it just coincidence? The food that was taken out of the mouths of peasants was used to feed the Red Army, who benefited the most out of the policy. The Red Army had grown in numbers pre-1920s and was a sufficient force. However, Stalin wanted them to get involved much more. To, be to prevent or deter any more invasions, Stalin introduced collectivization and the five-year plans, particularly in the end mostly for modern armaments. The grain and other resource exports which Stalin tried to maintain despite the famine of 1932 to 1934 was used to get the foreign currency to purchase the great number of arms to fuel his growing army. The arms benefited the army greatly and rendered it a powerful, powerful force. In, 19, in, in the Second World War of 1939. However, the arms were at the cost of millions of lives, and although it was a success for the army and Stalin, it was an overall failure for many more. The food was crucial in keeping the Red Army fit and strong. However, despite all these direct benefits, the disaster all around them finally caught up with them. The peasants were the main source of fresh troops, and their numbers were so great that they swelled army numbers. But during the famine of 1932, and the deportation of many others, the peasants decreased in their millions. The army, as a result, lost many members, as well as valuable stock of recruits for the future. This is 
a great dis disadvantage, but compared to the influx of new weapons and security of direct food supply, the army definitely, definitely benefited most from the collectivization policy. The policy, however, was not as beneficial to the economy of the country. The USSR economy had recovered slightly from the Civil War crisis as a result of the NEP. However, due to the problems with the NEP in the 1920s, Stalin pushed for rapid industrialization and the increased requisition of grain for the state and army. The USSR, although with a weak economy, had massive international resources and could well build up its economy to a healthy level. The Great Depression had left the country's foreign capital in tatters with insufficient ex exports, but the development that was to follow resulted in the harnessing of the USSR's resources to develop the country. Collectivization was a major part in this process of modernization, particularly in developing the agricultural industry to a world level. Stalin claimed that by the spring of 1930 the country would have 60,000 tractors in the field. However, this was a wild estimate. Development was not rapid enough to produce that many. Mass collectivization only reached 23% of farms by 1933, and so did not have a great impact on the economy as it may have liked to. However, whether or not sufficient numbers were collectivised, the famine of 1932 was sufficient enough to reflect that, on the whole, the policy was not working. The number of kulaks and peasants, either killed or deported, amounted to millions. Every single one had previously contributed to the economy as workers. The lack of workers on these collective farms led to a decrease in grain production. However, due to the state's forced procurement of grain from the starving peasants, the economy was kept relatively stable. Exports were maintained reasonably well, only suffering in 1932 and 1933, and the imports of the arms and machinery aided to the rapid development. Indeed, this rapid development did eventually pay off in the end, and the development of heavy industries was certainly beneficial to the economy. However, when looking at collectivization as an isolated contributor to the economy, it had limited its success. The state inter intervention perhaps helped the economy in its, in its trade, but it also led to the slight decline due to the same policy. Collectivization in the end was a success in that it did supply some resources to aid industrialization, and indeed by the end of the third five-year plan and World War II, the USSR was a competitive world power and had the armaments that it needed for defense. In this way, it achieved one of Stalin's aims. However, it did not manage to ensure a good quality of life during the process. For the people of the USSR, the peasants, the kulaks, and the Ukrainians who suffered due to the harsh policy and the famine that ensued as a result, it was a dismal communist failure. Stalin and the Red Army were the only real benefactors of the long-term scheme, but had the grounding and government support to keep their heads above the wave of misfortune and disarray. However, in retrospect and on the whole, the process was not a success, but close to a humanitarian disaster. Millions of peasants that died in the Ukraine did not benefit in any way, and the government was not doing itself any favours by denying their deaths, and it was by no means beneficial to the economy or to anyone else in the communist system. Collectivization was not in its, in its entirety an example of prosperous progress and did not result in an overall attainment of wealth, acclaim or influence within the aspects which were directly affected by the collectivization policy. That's the end of chapter one. Chapter two will shortly follow.
The late 1920s heralded the collectivisation of agriculture, but this was merely a single thread of the tapestry woven by a time of rapid industrialisation in Russia. A second revolution, a revolution of industry that brought Russia to a competitive world level. Element of Stalin's power struggle was his views on socialism in one country. Socialism in one country can be seen as follows. Based on the assumption that the Soviet Union would be the only socialist country for the next 20 years, they should enrich themselves, as no other country would support them. As the Communist Party party became more and more overrun by Stalinists, his views took more hold. However, the general view was to keep within the framework of the NEP. In 1926 and 1927, four main factors shifted the opinion in the favour of rapid industrialisation. You should make sure you remember these for the context of an event is always key to understand why it occurred. The first factor was that manufacturing in general was recovered by the end of the NEP programme. Its production figures were now back on track in line with pre-1914 levels. However, manufacturing now had limited capacity for any further growth and production. If production was to improve, new plants needed to come in, come on steam. A time of socialist construction was needed. Secondly, the recent defeat of the left-wing united opposition meant that Stalin had the freedom to adopt the so-called super-industrialist policy without criticism from rival Trotsky. Possibly the most urgent and convincing factor was the breakup of diplomatic relations worldwide. The Soviet Union itself suffered a devastating shock when Britain broke off its relations in May 1927. In addition to this, there were tensions as relations with France and Poland deteriorated. The Soviet Union desperately needed to industrialise so as to build up its defences in preparation for predicted hostilities. The final capstone was the recent success achieved in the agricultural industry. Don't get confused here. It was not collectivisation that was success. The success in agriculture here refers to the industry during the years of the NEP. This convinced critics in the party that industrialisation may be viable. Stalin announced a policy of industrialisation in 1928 to favour a scheme that would ensure Russia caught up with the through communist and not capitalist means. Stalin made clear his intentions. He wanted attention to economic independence and to heavy industries such as coal, steel, oil and the like. Money was set aside for the proposed industrial expansion, cut from other sectors. The time of industrialization in Russia was proposed for several reasons. In this section, we will examine whether or not Russia achieved what it set out to do. Industrialization was undertaken primarily in order that Russia would become powerful through creation of economy-powerful state. Russia, as a communist country, could not align itself with other Western countries and gain their defenses. Instead, Russia had to do, or at least wanted to achieve, autarky in order that it could support itself. This would allow Russia to defend itself and display the superiority of communism over capitalism. The industrialization process, as the continuation of the revolution, would hopefully be accompanied accompanied by a cultural revolution such that the Russian people would become the ideal race in a supposedly ideal Russia. Simply hearing these, what do you think is the likelihood that these aims would be fulfilled? Industrialization was the aim in 1928. The means and tool were encompassed into five main programs called the five-year plans. These set out the aims of the industrial progress, although they did not specify how to achieve it. The main planning agency, Gosplan, drew up these plans and established quotas for industrial sectors in each Soviet, including prediction of future economic performance. One thing to note is that these so-called plans were more general directives with no statistical aid. Stalin constantly increased the targets under the impression that industry was blooming at a remarkable rate. 
His delusion was as a result of falsified statistics used to satisfy the party and remain in favour. The plans were enforced by the secret police, the NKVD, and party cadres, or spies, with strict severity. The five-year plans. The first year... The first five-year plan was introduced between 1928 and ended in, 19, in 1933. The plan was set, and certainly did, focus on heavy industries such as the production and refining of steel, coal and iron. The plan was not merely a stage in industrialization; it was the beginning of a period in Soviet history. During the five-year plans, but primarily in the first, there were great efforts to persuade and unify the public into the industrialising process using propaganda. This emphasised a common viewpoint that industrialization was not about figures, it was the grand design that mattered. In effect, the plan was one great propaganda project to Russians and the world. This tied in with the Cultural Revolution introduced in Soviet Russia. In Russia, a social image emerged, accompanying the socialist realism takeover experienced in culture. You'll learn about this in our podcast on socialist realism. The image of Homo Sovieticus, the Soviet man, you could see this as the Aryan race or Superman of the Russians. He was the ideal man, the next level of the evolution. Statues of Homo Sovieticus were erected all over Russia as incentives to work harder. This definitely paid off in the end. The results from the first five-year plan, which was in fact accomplished in four years due to Stalin's demand, portrayed a great success. Electricity production had trebled, coal and iron output doubled, and steel production increased by one-third. The engineering sector developed, which led to an increase in the supply of tools. Tractor works were established in Stalingrad for the joint process of collectivization, which we learnt about earlier. However, despite these achievements, there were some drawbacks. Overall, excluding heavy industries, there was little progress. The consumer industry was severely neglected, leaving the workers with little material incentive to work for the state. There was instability, mostly as a result of resistance and consequent punishment. Furthermore, Soviet Russia did not achieve sufficient income from her exports to pay for the mostly imported machinery. However, overall, the progress during the first plan definitely boasted a new era in Russian history and was the foundation for further development in the second five-year plan. The second five-year plan was a plan of consolidation, strengthening and repairing the damage caused by the unrealistic first plan. It saw a relaxation in production between 1933 and 1937. The targets set were much more realistic. The focus in the second plan was still on heavy industries, but in addition there was an important drive to develop transport and communications. Why do you think transport and communications are important in modernising Russia? The results were just as grand and as the grand projects themselves. Electricity continued to expand. Heavy industries improved further still. Transport and communication grew as well and as the chemical and metallurgic industries developed. Furthermore, Russia was practically self-sufficient in metalworks by 1937. However, the period occupied by the plan was accompanied by the vicious post kirov purges and the Great Purge, which we'll learn about in the next podcast. Scapegoats were identified in industry as saboteurs and were either violently purged or put on public trial. Living standards failed to improve, they in fact worsened. Consumer goods were neglected once again, and oil production actually decreased. The workers had no voice 
to protest these conditions as trade unions had been banned since 1920 and strikes were illegal. To contrast these negatives, the government arranged certain icons in society to provide the incentives for hard work. We will examine the case of Alexei Starkanov as an example of how the government was prepared to set up incentives for workers and as a proof of success. The Stankovite movement, Alexei Stakhanov, was a pneumatic pick operator. On the 30th of August 1935, he achieved the impossible. He cut 16 times the amount of coal that any normal shift could achieve. This was exploited by the government, making him out to be a superhuman. A movement developed consisting of Stakhanov aspirers who attempted similar feats. Of course, the government played it up. Stakhanov had people moving the coal out for him continuously through, throughout this, his shift. However, the event was significant enough to encourage mass production, demonstrating the government's seamless propaganda strategy. The third five-year plan. The third five-year plan, in reality, took place over three years since the Second World War interrupted industry with its introduction in 1939. As such, heavy industry was targeted as the need for munitions and arms became increasingly relevant. Machinery and industry grew, and as a result of the necessity, the amount of arms produced also grew. The plan was taken up by the needs at the front. All resources were sent directly to produce armaments and ammunition. This resulted in a drastic lack of resources in other industries. Unfortunately, steel failed to grow sufficiently for the needs of arm production. In addition to this, there was a fuel crisis, severely limited movement of resources. As far as the workers were concerned, consumer industries were targeted initially, but due to the war, ignored once more. At this point, you should ask yourself, to what extent were the three five-year plans a success? Did production really improve, and was it a success to the workers who galvanise production. Success or failure. Success and failure can only be, in, be examined in relation to Stalin's aims set out for industrialization. To remind you, they were to create an economically powerful state, to achieve autarky, to enable the Soviet Union to defend itself, to demonstrate the superiority of communism over capitalism, and to continue the revolution and to catch up to the West. The Soviet Union, to a great extent, achieved an economically powerful state. Over 12 years, coal output increased by five times, steel by six, electricity by five, and oil doubled. New industries were born and areas of the country incorporated into industry for the first time. Collectivization benefited from an increase in tractor production as well as fertilizers between 1928 and 1940. Production figures exceeded the West in 1930. In 1940, it had 20% of the world sharing in manufacturing. Although the economy was unbalanced and no overall strategy was adopted, the fact is that after 1945, Soviet Russia was a world superpower. That's proof enough. Stalin wanted Russia to achieve autarky on the basis of its communist nature. This was achieved to some extent, but was not complete since many manufactured materials were imported with Western technology. The USSR's meagre attempt to use her own technology was not successful, and so modern technology was not used and vital financing and materials were wasted. However, industrialization on a whole was largely done using internal manpower and Russia's own finances. The 
production outputs, particularly in the third five-year plan, were sig significant enough to allow Russia to defend itself. The Red Army benefited from a direct supply of developed armaments, and the production of tanks and aircraft increased. In 1928, there were 92 tanks, but in 1935, there were 10,180. This success was epitomised in the German defeat by the Soviets in 1945. One of the greatest reasons for industrialization was to show off communism to the world, to demonstrate its superiority. In effect, this was a success. Grand projects such as Manitogorsk and Dnipropetrovsk Dam, and even the metro rail system, were signs of a new communist era in Soviet Russia. Emphasis was put on qual quantity, not quality, in order that Russia would achieve almost impossible production figures. That's propaganda in itself. Furthermore, the Great Depression, seen as a capitalist failure, was a time when Soviet production exceeded the world and perhaps demonstrated the success of communism in industry. Stalin announced that the Soviets were 50 to 100 years behind the West. He said that they should make good progress in 10 years. Well, the Soviets certainly did that. Although production may only have been superior in, to the West in 1930, industrialization continued effectively. And in 1945, Russia was a major world economic player. However, one element that did not catch up with the West was the social standard. Arguably, Stalin did not aim to improve this, but success had to be dependent on a viewpoint. And the people who contributed to so much to Russia were not given anything that resulted in an increase in their living standards, status or wealth. A great injustice, perhaps not one related to the purpose of industrialization, but certainly linked to the people who carried out, were the use of gulags. Gulags were penal institutions with integrated labour camps and factories. The so-called enemies of the state were kept in gulags and provided cheap labour to fulfil five-year plans. In a way, Stalin had cheated, and communism did not, in its pure form, win over capitalism. Give some thought over this next question. How did industrialization consolidate Stalin's role as, role as dictator in the 1930s? To conclude, modernization may have had its drawbacks, but it allowed Russia to be boosted to a level significant enough to join a massive and brutal war. Their successes in it, and are indications of a successful attempt to modernise Russia. Collectivisation was not a success in its entirety. To the majority of the social groups involved, collectivisation proved a great injustice, not a least for the Kulaks. However, the industrialisation that took place with the support of collectivisation was extremely successful in its fulfilment to production targets and its aims. However, Russia never truly reached autarky, nor achieved its boost-worthy production figures without capitalist input. Today, Russia is on the G8 Council. It is unlikely that this technological advanced country could have got to that world level without modernization in the 1930s, for although elements did fail, modernization in its entirety and looking back at its effects was, relative, was a relative success and of genuine benefit to the industry. For listening to the Woken College History Passport. If you'd like more information about Woken College, please go to www.woking.ac.uk.